Broadcasting from the commodity capital of the world, Zurich, Switzerland, this is Insider's Guide to Energy. This edition to Insider's Guide to Energy is brought to you by Fidectus. Go to www.fidectus.com for more information. Welcome to Insider's Guide to Energy. I'm your host, Chris Sass. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Johan. Johan, what's going on today? Hey, Chris. Good to be on again. Not as pleasant as last time, I have to say, when I had the opportunity to sit in our temporary studio in your living room. Yeah, last time was fun. We're, we're, we're in the same room. I'm looking forward to doing that again in the near future. Today, I'm stuck in the office, though, so so be it. It's part of it. But with colder temperatures coming... And it's cold out here, at least in Switzerland. I, I don't know what it's like where our guest is in the U.S., but it's cold here. And energy always comes up when it gets cold. And energy transition comes up. Um, looking to, to find out more what's going on and, and, and find out what people are thinking today. No, for sure. And I, I think we, we've had a, a lot of talk on, on the show about the impact of, of the energy transition. A uh, bit curious as well today, and, and judging by our pre-calls as well, to talk a little bit about the human capital. How do we transition also the people and the skill sets around this? Because it's not just a technical uh, transition. So curious to hear a little bit more about this. Well, I think, as I always say, rather than you and I talking, we should bring our guest on and, and have a dialogue with our guest. Today, we're joined by Tim Montague. Tim, welcome to the program. Thanks, Chris. Good to be here. Well, we're happy to have you. Uh, I think it makes sense because I know who you are and Johan does. We had a pre-call and we know your background to start by introducing yourself to our audience and who you are. Absolutely. I'm Tim Montague. I'm a solar professional here in Illinois. I work nationally developing CNI, what we call commercial industrial uh, rooftop, behind the meter solar projects and community solar projects. And I'm an avid podcaster. My show is called The Clean Power Hour. I got into podcasting in 20, uh, 2013, but got serious about it in 2017. And I see myself as a, as a beacon for other professionals who want to find their way into the energy transition. And so your day job, Solar, you talk energy and energy transition on your podcast. Uh, what are we going to talk about today? What, what, what's, what's keeping you awake these days? Yeah, well, I'm also leaning into training now, and um, I'm a NABCEP trainer. NABCEP is the North American Board Certified Energy Professionals. It's, a, it's the gold standard in the solar industry for certification. And, you know, it's heady days, right? We have this legislation now called the IRA or IRA, depending on who, who you are, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act. And, you know, the U.S. has about 10% wind and solar on the grid today, and we're going to go to 80 plus percent by 2050, hopefully a little faster than that. But uh, we have a massive growth opportunity ahead of us in just wind and solar. And of course, we're pairing that with energy storage because wind and solar are intermittent. But 
to make all that stuff happen, the infrastructure, and, and I also want to talk about electrification of everything. It's not just the grid, right? We're, we're electrifying transportation. We're electrifying heavy industry. And the net result of that is that we're going to triple the amount of electricity we need. This is a huge amount of, of uh, grid infrastructure. And then things like heat pumps in our homes and our buildings, uh, today we have gas furnaces, tomorrow we have electric heat pumps, today we have ice engine vehicles, tomorrow we have EVs. And you see this happening faster in Northern Europe. You know, in uh, my sons live in Norway. Uh, well, one of them lives in Norway, one of them just returned to the U.S. And in Norway, 80 plus percent of new vehicles are our battery electric vehicles, which is incredible, right? We're, we're around 2% in the U.S. still. So the U.S. is lagging. But one of the major, major weak points in the transition, so to speak, is human capital. Do we have the electricians, the um, carpenters, the laborers to install all of this equipment? And the answer is no, we don't. So I get the skills. And first, I have to say, if it wasn't for Norway, the Super Bowl commercials wouldn't be as much fun. So <laughs> so the EVs over there make for good Super Bowl commercials. But, you know, all Indeed. joking aside, um, I do think, you know, the, cap- the human capital could be a challenge as, as we get there. I do see universities offering classes and master's degrees and all kinds of skills for, for folks in energy. So are you talking about what level of training is missing or are you saying we're missing across the board? Well, just in my industry, for example, in commercial solar, when I got involved in 2016 and started taking online courses, I found that the vast majority of the content was skewed towards the residential solar market, which is an important market. We're installing about five gigawatts of residential solar a year. That's about 25% of the solar panels that we're installing in the U.S. The CNI market is smaller. It's around three gigawatts. But there's a, there's, a, um, there's a need for more good training information about the CNI market. So that's just one example. And that's where I'm leaning in, just using my expertise, what I've learned in the last seven years, and sharing that with others. Because there's a lot of residential installers or residential solar professionals who want to segue into commercial, and, and that's a good opportunity. But what I also think about is the fact that we need 1 million electricians. Electricians are retiring much faster than they're being replaced right now. It's an aging industry. And uh, there's, there's a whole lot of reasons why this is, but I just want to shine a light on this for Americans and for people globally to think about, like, we need to spend more time in the classroom when our kids are in kindergarten through fifth grade, teaching them about the built environment and how we get that stuff. It happens because we have people like electricians. And if we don't expose our youth to the trades, um, you're better about this in Northern Europe. You know, in, in Germany, you still have a very robust trade program for young adults. In, in the U.S., it's high school. Like, and, and then it's college or trade school, maybe, but people don't talk about trade school. It's kind of frowned upon. It's looked down upon. And you can make a hundred thousand dollars a year as an electrician. That's nothing to, uh, to, you know, to, it's no laughing matter. Like, this is a very serious, high wage career. Um, doing things that are different than you would learn with a bachelor's degree. But I think it's a both end. We need more training across the board around the built environment. 
But it's an interesting thing you you raised because one of the things that that I learned moving from from the Scandinavian countries into um, Switzerland is to have a strong apprentice uh, program, where which actually, on the contrary, then if I understand it correctly, to the US, which is actually looked upon as something necessary, something uh, with fairly high status. So even if you don't go to university, you have your apprentices and you get a skill set, and that's that's looked on very positive. But you mentioned also Norway, and 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 I think there is obviously the EV uh, adoption is unique in in it in every single way. But if you look at the in terms of the educational part and 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 how we get people electricians in Germany, where do you see more differences? Why you mentioned the Germany and Norway being leading, but surely it's not just because a few subsidies on EV cars it's, it's got to be something else what what else can you see yeah you know i i am um i i am no expert on why we did certain things you know historically but we have we have methodically removed trade uh, trade school exposure from our educational system in in the high schools and you know th- things like shop class um where kids can get hands-on doing woodworking, doing metalworking, um, much less working with electricity. Like you, you get almost none of that. Of course, you get some exposure to electricity through physics. I was a I was a science student, and and I love uh, I love physics, um, but it's it's really through the the physicality, the built environment, everything around us, right, runs on electricity now. Without it, society collapses. It gets chaotic. There's riots in the streets if there's a big blackout, right? And and so there's this myth that to have a good high-paying career, you have to go to a four-year college. And it's a total myth. Um, we have way we have way too many young people graduating with social social studies degrees, for example, like history degrees. And, and, and then they're like, oh my God, I have to go into the real world and there's no job for historians. It's not that they're not learning some skills. Of course, learning to read and write and communicate is useful in other industries, but there's, there's a tremendous need for people of, of many different types of skill sets. You know, for example, electricians, they have to be better at math than most because there's a lot of math in electricity. You have to decide how big a wire, how much voltage can run through and so forth and so on. Right. And, and so, um, but, but those people may not want to go to a four-year school. They need to get into a trade school. And most young people in the United States don't even know that this is an opportunity or that there is a shortage of uh, energy professionals, uh, electricians, or that the energy transition is happening. So it's it's kind of this layer cake. Uh, it's it's a hodgepodge of reasons, and and the net result is we're we're in a, we're in a bit of a bind. So so interesting just to follow up on this one because it's I love about the stories of where we were, but I also love the positive of where we're going. So surely there are some positive signs in the future, and, and you know we see the renewable, uh, the the IRA or the ERA, in terms of of investing now in 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 the renewable energy. It started way before that, so it's it's kind of just emphasizing. But 
what else is what how else are we tackling this one and i'm not just talking about the young kids being trained as electricians but what else is supporting this energy transition because surely we need people as electricians but we need more people to to um, especially in the us then as we mentioned to to actually adapt to this transition it's going to change skill sets across the board of many yeah, it's a combination of things. Uh, you know, let's talk about the the IRA legislation, for example. It it has some requirements uh, that developers, energy developers, and contractors use labor that are coming from programs that have training programs, right, and are 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 paying prevailing wages. So there's the IRA legislation creates some incentives to fuel training programs. And there's organizations now like Grid Alternatives is an organization out of California that's working nationally with um, at-risk populations, low-income people of color, and bringing them into a uh, training program to teach them about rooftop solar, how to become rooftop solar installers. Um, There's also a program... I don't know the exact name, but it's a um, it's a climate uh, a climate core, and and this is also f- uh, funded by the IRA legislation. Um, there was a great story in, in PV Magazine uh, recently. If you're not familiar with PV Magazine, just Google that. A great resource for energy transition, all things uh, solar, but also energy storage, and. They're taking at-risk youth. These are people that are 20 to 35 um, who have a high school degree. Okay, they want high school grads, but then they're um, they're giving them training in things like install becoming an HVAC installer to install heat pumps, and they're paying them $20 an hour. You know, if they're going to go out into the world and go work at McDonald's, they're going to make, you know, eight bucks an hour. Uh, our, our, our wages are very low in the United States. And you can't make a living on eight bucks an hour. And that's why so many of these troubled youth are, for example, if they get involved in criminal activity, they're repeating because they they can't get their head above water. They can't earn a decent living. Um, so this, this Climate Corps is a very good thing, a way to bring in uh, hundreds and eventually thousands of young people into the trades to learn how to install the built environment that we so desperately need. So is is rooftop solar the answer at scale? I mean, you make a bunch of trainers there, but if you look at where these PV parks and and some of the larger scale things that are going to make a bigger difference, it, I mean, it's great. It's a it's a great job core type thing, right? It's great to get people involved, right? And as I said in the chat, I, I, I'm not convinced young people don't know the energy transitions going on because. I, I keep meeting amazing people that are young and they want to change the world and they want to do all kinds of things. So there's probably some percentage that do, some that don't. But is doing rooftop solar the answer? Because we're going to get bigger bang for the buck in the near term. You know, if you're going to electrify fleets and you're going to do storage and things like that, you know, behind the grid works great for big commercial enterprises, right? But isn't like a PV park going to be a better return on investment perhaps for the near term? It's a both and. You know, we already have uh, put buildings and roads on 6% of the land in the United States. That's our built environment. And we could take just a fraction of that and completely solarize our grid. That's how much space that is. We need about 1% to 2% of the landscape in solar panels to completely green the grid. 
And, and so, yes, it does make sense to do large scale solar farms. Um, that gives you a, uh, a lower cost of energy at the end of the day, right? Than a rooftop solar facility. But we already have all these rooftops and we're using electricity in those buildings. And so there is an efficiency there of putting panels on the building and using that electricity locally. That is a very efficient use of resources and it's good for consumers. Um, they're going to save money. That's kind of one of the the bottom dollars of the energy transition is that when you participate and when we eventually migrate the entire populace, right? Consumers on average are going to save about a thousand dollars a year uh, by getting solar or uh, access to solar power. If you don't have a sunny roof or you don't own a roof, you can't install solar, right? And so then you would go to community solar. You subscribe to a central facility, a one to five megawatt facility. That's the size of these projects. These are like five to 50 acre solar farms. And any consumer in Illinois now, pretty much, uh, or the vast majority of consumers can subscribe to a community solar program. We have this in oh, around 20 states now um, for people that don't own a roof or don't have a sunny roof or just don't want to do rooftop solar. So it's a both end. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. So I see that. And we've had the conversation on the podcast before because I, I think rooftop solar works well for a higher economic demographic, right? But if, if if a lot of people in an area are renters or non-homeowners, they don't really have control to the solar, right? And and so we still want them to have the advantage of, of, of green power and cheaper. And that's why I say it may be a, a better first step or a, a bigger, more efficient. I'm not saying it's mutually exclusive that you do one or the other, but I, I would just think that that solar parks are a big part of the near term, especially if you need to get that energy quickly and at scale, right? That, that's that's all I was thinking. Um, yeah, and there's other aspects of the built environment that we have to think about too, like our use of natural gas for heating. Um, we have to we have to move away from that, and and that is a challenge for low and middle income families, right? Because upgrading your HVAC system is is a non trivial purchase. We're talking about a ten to twenty thousand dollar purchase, and so we have to create innovative funding mechanisms where um, to make it to make it more of like a lease uh, a lease buyout type of a program, and, and so um, you're absolutely right. We have to be careful about the equity, uh, you know, and access to these new technologies, and but ultimately, uh, and and this is why it takes good industrial legislation that is the role of good government is is to take this very big picture and to incentivize the energy transition if we leave people to their own devices uh, people are going to stay in their lane and not make the transition as quickly as we need to um, and and it will be the wealthy few so to speak that truly reap the rewards because you can save money by uh, solarizing your house. So in terms of in terms of this transition, we saw with with the the EV transition, obviously Tesla leading this way, saying you know let's let's go for the the top tier, the high income California usually that that has the equity, the money to pay for this one. We build a car that is faster, safer, and whatever they said they it was. And once we have this proven, we'll then ship out the the cheaper ones. In terms of the overall transition, I think you mentioned a few percentage 
at all in the US now with, with a goal of 80 plus percent by 2050. How do you, what, what are the main challenges you see coming out of the US to make this, to speed up this transition? Because I think we, we have the tools, we know what to do, but what is really holding it back? Energy is artificially cheap. Uh, that is a huge barrier. You know, here in Illinois, uh, until very recently, I was paying four and a half cents uh, for residential electricity, four and a half cents per kWh. And that's why solar came later to the Midwest than it did to the coasts. You go to California and energy costs 20 plus cents a kWh or New York state or Massachusetts. And so where energy is more expensive and that, and, and I point to Northern Europe, if you want to see the future, go to Northern Europe, you will see much greater adoption of solar and electrification because Fossil fuels are expensive and, and energy is relatively expensive. Gasoline might be four times as expensive in some parts of Europe as they are in the United States. We're very rich in fossil fuels and we do subsidize them massively. They're subsidized globally, but we're, we, we subsidize fossil fuels. And so energy is very cheap and we have abundant fossil energy. Now what's happening, of course, is wind and solar are knocking on that door and the long-term cost of energy is competitive with other technologies. But we're also not taking into account that carbon pollution that we're putting into the atmosphere. Um, there's 800 gigatons of, of uh, greenhouse gas equivalents, CO2 equivalents in the atmosphere. If you could see it, it would be a horrible mess, right? But it's transparent. And you look up and it just looks like blue sky. It looks like everything's fine. Well, those gases are now causing runaway climate chaos that uh, our children and children's children are going to have to spend a lot of resources picking up the pieces from. And, and so that artificially cheap energy that doesn't take into account the societal cost of climate chaos, because it's not cheap to build dikes. You can do it, right? You could build dikes around Miami and prevent it from, um, you know, flooding when the sea level rises. Uh, I saw, I saw a, a, a popular uh, podcaster named Dave Roberts asked the question on Twitter recently, what cities do you think are going to be most negatively impacted by climate change in the U.S.? And it was a small cadre. It was places like Phoenix, where we have a water shortage. We have a drought going on in the West. It was places like Miami, where the ocean is infiltrating into the built environment. And so, you know, I don't think climate chaos is, is, is going to make us extinct. It's just going to make it hard to have the good life. And, and I want my you know, my children and children's children to have the good life that I have and, and not have to worry so much about uh, mass migration, for example, which is going to be a major disruptor for just about everybody. So, but I think that, you know, the, the recent legislation and money that the U.S. is putting into energy is that jumpstart, right? So if I look at, you know, projects taking place, like the U.S. has been behind Europe but with this current legislation, it puts it in the race and things are expedited. There are shovel-ready projects. The, the large companies that build infrastructure, build equipment, are looking how to get hydrogen in play and looking at other things that will give us an advantage, right? Um, I do wonder, you know, short-term, if there aren't some quicker wins, like insulating houses. Houses are pretty inefficient, right? So if you look at things where you can just reduce the energy demand on the demand side, there's, there's plenty that could be done. 
um, on the U.S. side as they move to climate, you know, to, to protect the climate and use less energy, right? So those things aren't necessarily all being done at scale. But I, I do think it's headed the right direction. It's just not as fast because the economy is tied to, to hydrocarbons. You know, there, there's plenty of natural gas. And, and frankly, the, the significant early winds in North America were getting off of coal for power generation to move into gas, right? And so it's an incremental step that people don't agree. I'll talk to some, I've had some guests get mad at me in saying that. But I, I do think it's trying to go the right direction. And what's flipping it is, like you said, is is when the economics work. So, you know, the behind the meter solar projects that we see are because the economics work for the large enterprises, right? And as that takes place, I think we're headed that way. Nobody I meet says they want climate change. They want to do things, but they don't want to give up their lifestyle they have today. They want it to be manageable. Is that what you're seeing as well? There's a lot to unpack there. You, you, I want to, I want to highlight what you said about energy efficiency. Absolutely, we want to lean into energy efficiency and make our buildings more efficient with better insulation, with better technologies. You can upgrade the controllers in your HVAC system for commercial buildings and save a lot of money using smart thermostats. Um, so it's a both and, right? We we want to green the grid, but we want to use less energy in the in the environment that we have, make it more efficient. That's that is definitely the low hanging fruit. And 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 the IRA legislation does incentivize energy efficiency. Energy efficiency is a much bigger part of the economy than clean energy today. Uh, I don't know exactly, but it's on the order of five times bigger in terms of the number of workers and the dollars involved in that. So it's a huge segment of the economy and will continue to be because, you know, electrifying everything is a, is a big part of this, right? Today, gas furnace, tomorrow, hybrid furnace even um, that uses less gas or is pure electric. And, you know, in most climate zones, you can get away with this, uh, especially if you use electric resistance heat to augment what a heat pump can do. A heat pump is like an air conditioner that runs two directions. It heats and cools. It's not rocket science. It's very mature technology. Uh, you see heat pumps broadly in Europe, right? I, I saw my first heat pumps in, in Norway. In the U.S., they're not common. Air conditioners are very common, but not heat pumps that are these bi-directional heat pumps. So, um, and then the second part, I'm not sure what what you were driving at there, Chris. I can't remember at the moment. So, specifically, in what? Uh, well, you you we, we were talking about the transition and are are people getting on board with this? And it's uh, you know. Consumers, they don't care so much about the environment. It's it's maybe. Oh, I um, disagree. It, I, I I disagree. I, I don't think I've met anybody, whether they work for an oil company or not, that will tell me they don't care about the environment. What they well, want is a quality of life. That, but there's a cost to that. To, relative to what? Right. They're more concerned about the cost of food and the cost of energy and transportation than they are about. Um, gigatons of carbon in the atmosphere and climate change. Certainly climate change has gone mainstream and that is an amazing thing in the last five years to see how it's just in the mainstream media now and most mainstream consumers are aware that climate change is occurring and it is a potential problem, um, you know, with fires, droughts, floods, etc. What we haven't seen yet that's coming, the next thing for the developed world is mass migration 
from places that are having collapse of food systems. And we, and we, we haven't seen that in the U.S., although we do have a immigration problem caused by economic disruption in Latin America, for example. It hasn't achieved a massive crisis level. I'm talking uh, like people migrating from Florida or Louisiana to Illinois en masse because they can't make a living or eke out a living in those parts of the world. So anyway, um, yeah, we can debate how, how, how much consumers care about the environment. It's, it's a spectrum, but only about 10% of business owners, for example, really care about sustainability. When I'm talking to a facility owner about solar, I never lead with sustainability because I only have a 10% chance of, of hitting, uh, you know, a sweet spot, so to speak. That's an interesting point because obviously we hear a lot about sustainability especially from corporations you know we're, we're just down the road from us slightly longer than down the road is davos and last week was the big uh, world economic forum where energy was obviously a hot topic and and the whole sustainability from the world leaders were were, were, were on the the were on the all of the agendas maybe more of a gloom picture uh in regards to that but i have to say Coming out of Europe, and, and especially now, I see two other kind of trends as well in terms of this energy transition and, and the focus on it. One is it's extremely related to the situation we have in Europe right now, not just the high energy prices, but also the war uh, in, in Ukraine and Russia. And that's literally on the border to us. So, so that basically means it's, it's related to energy in, in, in a very related way. So suddenly now energy becomes a, a power thing that that can actually, well, has created the situation in many ways. The second part, which I think is, if we turn it around to more positive coming out of the gloom of Davos and, and the war in Ukraine, what we're seeing is the entrepreneurships around this. Suddenly now, you know, coming out of the Scandinavian countries, if we come back to my 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 home country, which is Sweden, we see not only investments in, in renewable because it's sustainable, but because it's inevitable and if it's inevitable in this change, we want to be the first ones. And if we're the first one, we can do the next big wave. So we're building some of the largest battery parks. We're shifting our iron into uh, CO2-free or, or to green iron. So there's a lot of, and the mining is changing as well in terms of sustainability. So, so I really look at this in terms of the opportunity as well. And we've had a lot of guests from the U.S. part of this one, especially coming out of Austin and Texas. I've never been to Texas, but... It's, it's fascinating to see that you also have the entrepreneurships around this, and that surely is a big driver as well, isn't it? Or uh, is it still just legislation and, and, and money? Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, the, the, the energy economy is a full spectrum. Uh, you can think of it as, uh, you know, technology and the, and the elements that come out of the earth combined. And so there's a lot of innovation happening in software and construction methodology. And of course, we're pushing the boundaries of, of the, like solar technology, developing more and more efficient technologies, even though the, it has asymptoted, like we're approaching that 30% maximum in traditional photovoltaics what they're doing now is they're layering different technologies on on each other bringing in for example perovskites 
Um, and, and so there's a there's a, there's a huge economic opportunity here, huge challenges, huge opportunity, and that's my mantra. You know, we're going to invest about a hundred trillion dollars globally in the energy transition, and so it's a wealth transfer opportunity for investors. It is a great opportunity, of course, for uh, people looking for a great career. You know, if you get into an energy career today anything related to wind, solar, or storage, you have 30 years of runway, right? Um, you may have to move around. Like in the U.S., we have what, what we call the solar coaster. Things boom and bust in a locality or in a region. We had a boom in 2017, 2018 in, in Illinois, and then we busted for a couple of years, and now we're booming again. Um, and now the U.S. is booming on a greater landscape because of the IRA legislation, um, which is just fueling massive, massive onshoring, for example, and reshoring of manufacturing. We have battery factories, uh, EV factories, and solar panel factories coming out of our ears now, thanks to the IRA legislation. And that means good jobs and uh, products that are made in America. That is a national security issue with the energy transition that 70% of the batteries and 70% of the solar panels are made in Asia. Uh, how on earth are we going to have a consistent supply chain when we don't make the stuff here in our backyard? So that's changing. And that's also a good thing about the, uh, the current legislative environment. That was actually one of my, my questions in terms of how do you look at the global competition? But you know what? Uh, you triggered another question. I, I, you started off the podcast with this, uh, and now you alluded to it again, that Illinois being the, you know, the, the boom and the bust around solar. So enlighten me a little bit. Uh, you know, I, I've lived in the U.S., but I haven't traveled along a lot. I've been in Illinois and Chicago in wintertime. So how come Illinois seems to be a center for solar where in my world, that will be Texas or, or Florida. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. It is a common misperception that we don't get enough sunlight uh, in, in the northern parts of the U.S. And, you know, Germany is up in Canada from a, from a latitude perspective. You're really up there um, in, in, in northern Europe. We're, most Americans don't realize just how far north northern Europe is. And, and, and so if it works in Germany, it'll work in the U.S. for sure. Um, so. There's that. And then we have, uh, you know, Illinois is, we, we call it the third coast. We have New York, Los Angeles, and historically Chicago was the third largest city. Now Houston, I think, has eclipsed Chicago, uh, which is indicative of what's going on in the Texas economy. Texas is also the largest solar economy now. California was for a long time. Now Texas has eclipsed California. There's so much solar and batteries going to the Texas economy, which makes uh, some sense. Like Austin is booming, right? You see Tesla building a factory. There are many businesses leaving California because they don't like um, the restrictions on the business environment. So they, they're moving to Texas or Florida, which are much more of the uh, freewheeling, libertarian style, do what you want. And, you know, and, and so the, the Texas economy is definitely booming. Um, it is also an oil, it is an oil and gas economy. And uh, there's, those are, those are healthy industries. While prices may go up and down, right? And, and that causes pain for consumers. When the price of oil goes up, lots of people are making money when that happens, right? And the oil companies are, uh, you know, starting to re-explore 
wells that they may have mothballed because now we have things like uh, you know CO two injection, right, extending the life of those of those projects. Um, but this 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 thing about boom and bust in the solar industry is very tied to local incentives, and we have renewable energy credits in in Illinois, which makes the payback period reasonable. Consumers want a five to seven year payback period when they're going to install solar on the roof. And if it's 10 or 15 years, they're just not going to do it. Or, or a very tiny fraction of the, of the consumers will do it. Some will, but it's, it's a very tiny fraction. So you brought me to the question that was coming to mind, um, which is, what are the regulatory, like the state or local level of regulatory support that you have, right? So you talked about national legislation, right? We can go to FERC or we can go, we can talk about all that. What's happening at the local level to drive this? So if I'm in Illinois, what what's the state doing to help drive this business in the state? We have, well, we, we part one was we got a renewable portfolio standard uh, back in 2008. Okay. If you don't have an RPS, um, you don't have a good renewables industry. The RPS is a goal. And our, our first RPS was 25% by 2025. And then you have to figure out, well, how are we going to drive that change? And they created a program um, that gives cash incentives for people that install solar. This really happened in, in on you know su- in a substantive manner in 2017. We got a we got legislation called FEJA, the Future Energy Jobs Act, and then in 2021 we got part two of that called CJA, which is the Climate and Equitable Jobs Act. The bottom line for this is. It creates training programs. Okay, so we're building the labor force. It creates cash incentives for consumers and business owners to install rooftop solar or solar and batteries. Now we have very good incentives for batteries. Get this. We have a $250 per kWh incentive for storage, which means the battery is cash positive by year two with the uh, tax incentives that we have. Right. You have the ITC investment tax credit, and then you have accelerated depreciation, and then you have these cash incentives, and that really drives change. And I'll give you a good example of why this is important. If, you st- if, you, if you're a facility owner and you install a rooftop solar array, let's say it's a big factory, you might save $250,000 a year with rooftop solar, say five to, five to six million over 20 years. If you do that solar plus storage, you could have uh, 10 to $20 million of ROI on that same project. It, it can triple the ROI by installing storage. Storage is much more flexible, right? The value stack of storage, as we call it, is much more dynamic and, and multi-layered. Solar has a value stack also, right? It's reducing your KWH consumption. It's lowering your energy bill. And then we're adding on this incentive, this renewable energy credit. That's a cash check. And then we're adding another incentive called the smart inverter incentive here in Illinois. That is another check. And so 40% of the project in Illinois for solar is paid by these cash incentives in the first five years. And that's what's driving the adoption of solar. And then how's the current economy impacting the rate of deployment right now? So the economy may not be as rosy as some like it to be. 
Um, we see lots of layoffs happening in the tech sector. Uh, you know, my goodness, Microsoft laid off 10,000 people. Google laid off 12,000 people. And, and of course, this does impact the Illinois economy. The Illinois economy is very diverse. We have a farming um, and agricultural economy in the rural parts, and then we have a manufacturing economy in Chicago and in the major metros, but it's also very diverse. There's financial services, there's banking, there's tech. And, and so the Illinois economy is actually quite healthy overall. Uh, unemployment is low and energy prices are going up. The cost of gas natural gas and electricity are both going up. And so this makes consumers more aware um, and consider alternatives like rooftop solar. So higher energy prices is good for the energy transition. And I, I think that's a common theme we've had on the show as well. You know, this is a surprise thing, but I really, I, I like the way you talked about the ROI for for a factory example so if they put the solar and and also the batteries so is this happening or is there the way i can see this you know we we're, we're working towards a, a quarterly uh kind of financial targets we have full focus on driving our core business saving costs on certain things but is it enough emphasis on actually doing the larger portion of this saving for industrials, or is it easier just to go to your energy company today and renegotiate your, your 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 price of energy? So how do you is it because for me this is a no brainer. If I can get an ROI on X in you said in two years, and then on on a long scale with batteries, I'm start making money. Then this should be a number one priority for every single real estate or at least large consuming ones. But are we seeing that? Or what, if not, what hells it back? It is happening. It is happening. And, and, it, and it's happening both at the DG level, at the distributed level, meaning at the facility level, and it's happening at the grid level. We have um, something called coal to solar in the CJA legislation in the Climate and Equitable Jobs Act is, a, is special legislation incentivizing Vistra, which is a, a uh, an asset owner. They're an energy company out of Texas that owns a, a fleet of coal burning power plants in Illinois that they are mothballing and converting to solar and battery. And the CJA legislation gives them just enough incentive uh, on that battery piece, right, to, to do the battery project and really do these projects. And, and the battery is so important, as you know, right, because the sun only shines during the day. And so there's, there's three quarters of the day when you're not getting prime sunlight and you need other resources like a battery or a grid. It's a both end. The grid is like a ginormous battery itself. Um, and, and so the other, I think the other challenge though for business owners is they're just, they're kind of drinking from a fire hose. There's a lot going on with electrification. Batteries are in the news. Uh, lithium ion thermal runaway is in the news and people are skeptical about that and cautious and uncertain. The reality is, is that the vast majority of that infrastructure is just fine. There's a, a certain fraction of a percent that has problems, right? There are battery fires. Ice engine cars catch on fire all the time. You don't see it in the news because it's not news anymore, right? When, when ice engines were new, I'm sure it was in the news a lot. Um, so that's kind of where we are with electrification of transportation and batteries. It's just very new. People need a lot of education, but the incentives are real. And, um, and they are working for those companies who are forward thinking to take advantage of it. It's, it's definitely a great opportunity. 
You mentioned a lot of programs. We talked about a bunch of incentives during our conversation. So how overall is the U.S. doing? How, how, how's the scorecard going? Because it sounds like there's a lot happening based on this conversation. There is, is passionate, but there also was programs. Everything you mentioned was a program of things in flight. Yeah, it was it was very cool. The other day, uh, last week, I interviewed a battery executive from a company called Fryer, which is a Norwegian battery manufacturer. And, you know, I, I, I made my typical pitch that uh, if you want to see the future, go to Europe. And he said, well, we... We have a mantra, and that is, if you want to see the future, go to America. The the IRA legislation is a complete game changer, and it is putting the U.S. on the map now. Um, will it be fast enough? I don't know, right? We are we, we are the largest emitter of carbon pollution on Earth, um, and we're only 5% of the population, right? So is that just for... Uh, the low-lying island nations, you know, in the Indian Ocean that are going to be underwater and have to abandon ship? No, it's not. Uh, that's a problem. But I would say that, yeah, there is a huge opportunity in the U.S. That's why we see so many um, foreign companies setting up shop, whether it's, uh, you know, the Equinors of the world, uh, the EDPRs. I do project development for EDPR, which is a Portuguese utility. You see EDF, which is a French utility big player in wind and solar development, a lot of European companies, and then a lot of uh, Chinese manufacturers and uh, Korean manufacturers and Asian companies in general setting up shop here in the U.S. So it is kind of a, a boom going on in the clean energy transition. Um, and it's good for the economy. And it's and ultimately, it will be good for human health and good for a safer, healthier future once we really make the transition of course, we have to do this and we have to do it globally. And I think we have a responsibility in the developed world to help the less developed world come along. And, you know, we could buy out, for example, that's one of the ideas of some very smart people, people that are way smarter than me that say when they analyze the fossil economy, they go, well, look, it's only like $50 trillion or whatever it is. It's some amount of capital. We could just buy out the fossil fuel industry and put a blanket on it. We want fossil fuels for a rainy day. I'm saying let's sip them instead of guzzle because they're great. They're incredibly energy dense. Um, but at our current use, right, we are just kind of jumping off a cliff and we're just drinking them as quickly as we possibly can, which isn't going to leave any for future generations. Which I think we left on a good note. I'm always happy when, when we leave the show with a positive message. Uh, I think that's an interesting part. And it's always interesting sitting on this side of the ocean to listen to what the IRA or the IRA is actually doing. We heard about the word. We heard about the incentives. Politically, it's a lot about the trillions of dollars. But it's really interesting to see that from a renewable point of view as, as well, from an energy transition point of view, it's actually put to use and it's not working. So I, I think that's encouraging. But I think, you know, we're heading up for time. Tim, it was great to have you on. Uh, it was a pleasure to hear more about it. And uh, I think there is so much more. As always, we have a thousand more questions, but we only have this much time. So thank you very much for joining. Uh, and really appreciate having you on the show. Yeah, thank you so much, Chris and Johan. Really appreciate the opportunity. And for our audience, we hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as we have. If you did, please follow, subscribe, follow Tim, watch his podcast. Don't forget to comment. Comments are responded to. Follow us on Twitter, and we look forward to speaking to you again next week. Bye-bye.